Amen. Well, good morning, Grace Hill. How's everyone? It's good to see all of you. My name is Alan. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Hill. And so if this is your first time here and I haven't met you or you knew and we haven't been able to meet, we'd love to be able to meet you uh, after our service. But we're going to jump into God's word together this morning. So we are continuing in our study of the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. So if you have a Bible, you can open that to the Gospel of Luke. That's the third book in your New Testament. So uh, you have a few minutes to find it, and we'll be in chapter two. We'll start in verse 39. When we get there, if you wanna use your phone app, that's fine, and you can also uh, look at the screen as well. We'll have it uh, on the screen as well. Um, I'm not sure if any of you know the name Joshua Harris. Maybe some of you do, some of you don't. Josh Harris used to be a former pastor of a church here in the D.C. area for a number of years, and Josh became very famous, very well-known in Christian circles because in 1997, when he was just 22 years old, he wrote a book that sold over a million copies, and this book was entitled I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And in this book, what Josh Harris attempts to do is argue for a biblical sexual ethic, and in doing so, what he does is he proposes that Christians abandon the practice of dating and instead adopt the practice of courtship. Now, uh, this book was very widely read. Like I said, it sold over a million copies within the church, and, and many would say that what it did is it impacted basically an entire generation of young Christians and their view of God and their view of sexuality. Josh's intent in the book was to encourage a generation to follow the wisdom and commands of God's word and how they thought about dating and sexuality. But as that generation grew up, people began to realize, actually even Joshua Harris himself began to realize that there was a problem in the book. The problem wasn't the sexual ethics or even some of his interpretations of God's word that he proposes. That wasn't the problem. The problem was the unintentional view of God the book gave its readers. Uh, the first chapter of the book opens up with this dream. Um, this uh, girl named Anna is having this dream and she's dreaming of her wedding day. And it's this picture-perfect wedding day. She's so excited. She's been waiting for this day. And her husband's up there at the altar with her, and the husband is reciting his vows to her. And then this is what happens. I'm going to quote from the book. This is what happens in her dream. As the husband is reciting his vows, it says, A girl stood up in the middle of the congregation, walked quietly to the altar, and took David's other hand. Another girl approached and stood next to the first, followed by another. Soon a chain of six girls stood by him as he repeated his vows to Anna. Anna felt her lip begin to quiver as tears welled up in her eyes. Is this some kind of joke? She whispered to David. I'm sorry, Anna, he said, staring at the floor. Who are these girls, David? What is going on? She gasped. They're girls from my past, he answered sadly. Anna, they don't mean anything to me now, but I've given part of my heart to each of them. I thought your heart was mine, she said. It is, it is, he pleaded. Everything that's left is yours. 
tear rolled down Anna's cheek, then she woke up. See, this book sought to encourage a generation toward sexual purity and, and waiting till marriage and, and a very good biblical pursuit. However, the book presents this idea of sexual purity as something that belongs to you when you're born and it can be completely lost forever in one moment, in one relationship, in, in one decision. And that if you lose it, you'll regret it for the rest of your life. God will still love you, but he'll be disappointed. You'll enter like a different class of Christians. There are the Christians who did keep their purity, and then there are the Christians who didn't. And although God forgives them, they'll always have that burden on them, that regret, that shame. They, they messed up. Their wedding day in the future will have an asterisk next to it. They can never be made completely new again. They're now stained. Now, the book does not explicitly say that, but it leaves the reader with this view of God kind of lodged in their heart. And this morning, what I want to talk about is this, that there are consequences to theology. What's theology? Theology is, is the study of God, what we believe about God. Every single one of us is a theologian, no matter what you believe, because you have thoughts about God and who God is, if God exists or not. If you have thoughts about God, then you are doing theology. And there are consequences, good and bad ones, to our theology. It matters big time. Our view of God has massive implications in our lives. And if we have a view of God that is not true, even if that view of God is just slightly off, slightly skewed, maybe we emphasize some things over others, it can have devastating effects on our faith. I find it interesting that the author of that book, Josh Harris, has not only taken the book out of publication, but he's also walked away from the faith entirely. His intention in writing the book was a good one, but when our view of God is off, there's just massive implications to our faith. So I wanna talk about this. Uh, this morning, we're gonna continue in our study of the Gospel of Luke, and I wanna talk about the consequences of theology. Since the beginning of December, we've been studying Luke, so we're in Luke chapter two, and this is an eyewitness account of the life and teachings of Jesus. And so what Luke is trying to do, he tells us in the beginning of Luke chapter one that he writes this so that we can have certainty about Jesus. And so, so far, we've read about the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus. Last week, we studied the account of when uh, Mary and Joseph take Jesus to uh, Jerusalem to the temple so that he can be consecrated. And this morning, we are going to read the only account in the Bible of Jesus when he was just a little boy, 12-year-old boy. And in this account what we, that we're going to read right here, we are going to be forced to do some theology. We're going to be forced to ask the question, who exactly is Jesus? And our answer to that question has massive implications because there's always consequences to our theology. So we wanna answer that question and look at that. So Luke chapter two, verses 
39 to 52, the rest of chapter two, I'm gonna read for us and then we'll, we'll jump into it. Here's what the text says, starting verse 39. It says, and when they, that's Mary and Joseph and Jesus had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they're at the temple in Jerusalem. They returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew, this is Jesus, and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Verse 41, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when Jesus was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And three days, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I'm not sure what I'd do if my son said that to me. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. They're perplexed. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, let's imagine that you had a 12-year-old son. Some of you do. And your entire extended family decided to take a trip to Disney World. And we're talking everybody, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, everybody. If it was my wife's side of the family and it was all of them, it would be about 90 people, all right? So let's just say that we went all to Disney World, all together, huge caravan of people. We go. We spend seven days at Disney World because in our text this morning, it says they went to Jerusalem, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread is right after that, so they probably stayed for both for seven days. So we go to Disney World for seven days. And after the seven days are complete, we're all tired and everyone, it's chaos getting packed up. We're getting ready to go, making sure we got everyone, getting all the bags packed, the cars packed, because we're caravanning home, all of us together. And so you as parents assume that your 12-year-old son is somewhere in the chaos with you. That, that among all the aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents and everybody, that someone has accounted for him. So you begin to drive home. You live far away. You drive a day. It's time to stop. It's dark outside to get some dinner. So you stop. You get some dinner. You're sitting around the table with the family, everybody together. And it begins to dawn on you, I can't find my son. In fact, actually, if I think about it, I haven't seen him all day. But you assume he's somewhere in the mix, so you start asking around, hey, have you seen my son? Have you seen my son? And then it just dawns on you, right? Moment of panic. 
right? It's like Home Alone when the mom's on the plane, like, Kevin, right? Where is he? So you jump in the car, you race back to Disney World, you call the authorities, you begin the search for your son. Three days goes by from your realization that you don't have him. So you're back at Disney World, you're searching around, then you eventually find him. Where is he? Well, he's at the new Star Wars Galaxy Edge experience. Of course he is. And your son looks at you and goes, chill, mom, like chill, dad. Why would you assume I would be anywhere else? Of course I'm here, right? How would you respond in that moment? If this happened to you, there would be so many questions about who's responsible. Uh, Of course, you as parents, you would feel sick to your stomach, like the worst mom and dad in the world, right? Because you're like, I cannot believe I did not account for you before we left. But at the same time, you'd probably be furious at him for deliberately staying behind and not seeing anything wrong with it. But in our text this morning, Mary's response to this situation is she's perplexed and she's treasuring it all in her heart. There's a tension in this text because Jesus is not an ordinary boy. And Mary knows this. On one hand, Jesus is 100% 12-year-old boy. Our text this morning talks about how Jesus grew up. He increased in wisdom and stature. Right? Growth implies that there was a moment where he didn't have as much wisdom and he's grown and increased. He has more wisdom. Jesus has grown up. He also was a child with childlike tendencies, expected immaturities as he grew up. Even Hebrews 4 talks about how Jesus as a child and as an adult, because he's 100% human, can sympathize with our weaknesses because he's been tempted and felt the same weaknesses as we have. But on the other hand, At the exact same time, Jesus is 100% God. He's divine. Even as an infant, even as a 12-year-old boy, Jesus was God wrapped in human flesh. That's exactly what Colossians says. Nick read it for us this morning in our call to worship. I'll read it again. Colossians 1, 15 and 19 says this about Jesus. He, that 12-year-old boy, is the image of the invisible God. You wanna know what God is like? You look at Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. That means he's always existed. For by him, all things were created. That 12-year-old boy was there when all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for that 12-year-old boy. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's sustaining the universe. And as he is, sorry, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, look at this, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in that 12-year-old boy. And Mary knew this about Jesus. Because when the angel appeared to her to tell her that she was going to conceive of Jesus, the angel told her 
that this child would be conceived of the Holy Spirit and therefore would be God. We studied that, Luke 1, 35. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Mary conceived Jesus as a virgin. Angels appeared at his birth, worshiping him. Prophets came and said, we have been told by God that this is the Messiah. So here is the tension in our text this morning and the tension within Mary's heart. Her 12-year-old boy is just a 12-year-old boy. She nursed him. She taught him to walk. He cried. He scraped his knees. He threw his food off of his tray. He learned to talk. It wasn't like Jesus came out of the womb controlling the weather and walking on water. But at the very same time, her 12-year-old boy is the almighty, sovereign God who has always been, no beginning, will have no end, the very one who created everything with the word of his mouth. And so in that moment, when Mary finds Jesus in the temple making quite an impression with the teachers, she's perplexed. The, the mother in her wanted to scold Jesus for staying behind and, and blame herself for leaving him. But the woman of God and Mary wanted to fall on her knees and worship. Like there's a tension in this text. There's a tension in the Bible. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. His divinity does not take anything away from his humanity, and his humanity does not take anything away from his divinity. He's not gray. He's not a blend. He's not part God, part man. He is God, and he is man. We have a hard time with theology like this because we just can't connect those dots, right? 100% plus 100% doesn't equal 100%. Like we just can't connect that. We want all of our theology, all of the aspects of our faith to be something where we can connect all those dots. And if there's anything mysterious about God that we can't fully reconcile in our head, we have a, we have a hard time with that. Uh, my, my wife, she loves movies, and I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't like movies as much as she does. She always wants to watch a movie. I'm like hit or miss when it comes to movies. And sometimes my wife gets frustrated with me because we'll watch a movie and then I get very critical of the movie afterwards and she hates that. Um, but I'll never forget when we went to go see the movie Inception, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, all right? Uh, 10 years ago, that movie came out, 2010. It's about these guys that have this machine that lets you get into dreams. I didn't really like it, but you know, I don't know. But she loved it. And the reason why I didn't like it was because the movie never explained how this machine they have gets you into a dream. I couldn't connect those dots, so you lost me. I was like, I can't move on in this movie because you didn't explain that. That's too far for me, okay? And so I told this to Kim after the movie and ruined all the fun, and she thought I ruined it all. But it's the same way with theology. We read some things in the Bible about God that we can't fully understand in our minds and therefore we can't move on. Jesus, 100% God, 100% man. That makes no sense. How can that be? I can't, I can't move on. How can God be one but exist in three persons in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit? I can't, I can't organize that in my head. 
Uh, how can the Bible be written by human beings through their voice and their experience and at the same time be written by God through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? How do we have both realities? I can't move on. How can God be sovereign and control all things and at the same time allow evil and bad things to occur? I can't figure that out. I can't move on. And the, and the questions continue. See, we want the Bible, we we. We want to have command over the Bible and what it says about God and be able to say, I can now organize what I think about God. I know what I can accept and can reject. And we expect the Bible to pass the test of what makes sense to us. But the scriptures do not afford us the privilege of being able to stand over the Bible and approve or reject what it says about God. The very idea of faith is the idea that we sit under the Bible and submit to what it says about God. And we humbly admit that our infinite minds, I'm sorry, our finite minds could not possibly comprehend and connect every dot of an infinite God. And so our our text this morning demands that we live inside the same tension that Mary that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Any theology that says otherwise is is wrong. And when we change our theology from what the Bible tells us because we're trying to force God into what we can understand, there are massive implications to that. There are consequences to that. Our theology, it, it can't come from our gut or our feelings It can't come from what our minds can approve of. It must come from the revelation that God has given us, which is his scriptures. Because there's always consequences to theology and we're not infinite and we're not smart enough to be able to come up with all that theology on our own in our gut without there being consequences. So let's talk about it. What are the -the down-on-the-ground, real-world implications of veering away from a theology that says Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. What would happen if we said, you know, Jesus wasn't actually fully God? You know, the, the fact that he was a baby and a growing boy and he faced temptation and he experienced emotion and he had a body that could be harmed means that he was not fully God. Maybe he had a divine spirit about him, but not fully God. Now, number one, the Bible clearly says he was fully God in a number of texts, okay? And so if we were to go with this position and we're already in the territory of saying we got to veer away from the Bible and kind of form our own theology uh, apart from the Bible now, okay? So now my source of truth and theology is myself. So we're in that territory already, But if we keep going with it, what are the implications of that? If you take away the divinity of Jesus, the fact that the fullness of God dwelled in Jesus, if you take that away, then you take away the fact that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. You take away the fact that although we have sinned against God, although this world is fallen, although we are separated from God and we have rejected his words and his ways, that he came after us. 
that he drew near to us. He pursued us. He didn't wait for us to pursue him. He didn't wait for us to get our act together before he wanted to come near us and make a way that we could be right with him. You take away the divinity of Jesus, then you take away the fact that God came to us while we were still sinners. Jesus is God, and that means that God came not only to be with us, but to give of himself for us. So think about this. If you take away the divinity of Jesus, you take away God's supreme expression of love towards us. Because what is love? to lay down your own life for another. He came to be with us and to save us. Take away his divinity and you take away the fact that we have a God who although he is holy and he's righteous, he drew near. And so there's implications to that theology. You take away the divinity of Jesus, then God has gone from someone who has drawn near to us out of love to someone who has stayed far. Or what would happen if we were to say that Jesus wasn't fully human? That because he is indeed God, he, he cannot be fully human. He's like a superhuman with superpowers, right? He's not like us. He doesn't experience life like we experience life. He's God. He can rebuke the wind. He can heal people, raise people from the dead, win any fishing competition, right? He's not human like we are human. If you take away the humanity of Jesus, and you take away Jesus' ability to stand in our place as our substitute and conquer sin and death on our behalf. It's exactly what Hebrews teaches us. Look at this, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. I'm reading from the New Living Translation here. It says, because God's children are human beings, made of flesh and blood, the Son also, this Jesus, became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. We also know that the son did not come to help angels. That's why he didn't come as only a divine being. He came to help the descendants of Abraham, humans. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us. Our bodies, our spirits, our will, our emotions, all of it, every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. If Jesus is not human, then Jesus is not our mediator. He cannot stand before us and God and reconcile us to God. So the divinity of Jesus shows us that God has drawn near to us and the humanity of Jesus shows us that we are far apart from God and we need a mediator to reconcile us to God. See, the fact that Jesus is both God and man allows Jesus because he is God to be the perfect sacrifice to conquer sin and because he is human to allow that sacrifice to apply to us. That's what the Bible teaches. 
And if we decide to change that theology simply because our minds can't have command over the divine, infinite realities of God, then we reject the gospel. And so we must live with the tension, just like Mary had to live with, that Jesus is God and man. And this tension with Jesus is part of a a broader tension that we see with God in, in all of the Bible. But we serve a God who is both near and far. On one hand, God is far away from us. He's holy. He's righteous. Right? He cannot be in the presence of sin. All power and authority belongs to him. No one can challenge him. No one can find any fault in him. All his judgments are right and he's the creator of the universe. So Psalm 144, three and four is, is, is appropriate. Oh Lord, what are human beings that you should notice them? Mere mortals that you should think about them. For they are like a breath of air. Their days are like a passing shadow. And so the, the scriptures present God as one that we fear. Like if we were to stand in his presence, the response is face in the dirt. In comparison to God, right? We're like tiny little ant. We, we have no say when it comes to how God runs the universe. We have no say when it comes to what his word says and God demands holiness and obedience from his creation. And when we understand the transcendence and the holiness of God, there is no response to our own sin other than mournful repentance, getting on our face in sorrow, acknowledging the seriousness of sinning against a holy God, making no excuse. What argument could we as mere humans make against the God of the universe? And on the other hand, God is drawn near to us. He's merciful, he's gracious, loving and gentle. He has made a way at his own expense where our sin could be forgiven, where we could be welcomed as a child of God, where we could be made completely new, all stains washed away, right? Jesus, the the son of God, takes our sin upon himself, endured the holy, righteous wrath of God against our sin, took on death, so that all who call upon Jesus as their savior would not have to. And so we could be reconciled to this God who's holy. But we must understand that God's holiness does not take anything away from his graciousness, but we also have to understand that God's graciousness does not take anything away from his holiness. See, there are many who want to emphasize the grace and nearness of God over his holiness. And there are consequences to that theology. Uh, There are some who say because of God's graciousness to the Christian, that that they don't have to bother with things like repentance and confession. In fact, to acknowledge sin, to confess sin, to confront someone on sin is, is just shaming a person. But God is holy. He hates sin. We are commanded to confess our sin. We're commanded to repent of our sin, to make war against our sin. 
Battle language is used in the scripture on how we repent to take our sin seriously, not to, to minimize it. Because when we minimize the holiness of God, we minimize our sin, and that's blasphemous. God demands repentance, which is the acknowledgement of our sin and actively seeking to turn away from it. But at the same time, there are many who want to emphasize the holiness of God over the grace of God. And there are consequences to that theology as well. Similar to the consequences that the book I mentioned in the beginning had. We get a view of God that is so angry, so disappointed at our sin that we are forever stained. We get a view of God where we feel the need to, to ratchet up all of our religious stuff and our reading and getting up early and going to church and making we do all these things to, in order to prove to God that we're devout. We have to work to be reconciled to God. Even though we might confess the cross, we have no faith in the cross that it can literally wash every stain away from us. We miss the fact that we do not have to work to be made right with God and welcome this family. We simply have to have faith in, in Jesus. And brothers and sisters, this is the, the Christian life, right? Repentance and faith is both. Together, 100% each. Submitting to the holiness of God in repentance and having faith in the graciousness of God in Christ. And so this is the good news to us today in this tension. The holiness of God causes us to take our sin, our struggles, our shortcomings, and put it on the table. To acknowledge it. To call it what it is. To say that that is sin against a holy and just God that demands payment. And I did that. God is a just God, and he does not allow any sin by any person to go undealt with. None. He does not turn his back on any sin. He's not a pushover. He doesn't go, ah, it's all right. It's not God. And the graciousness of God to those who call upon Jesus as their Savior comes in and deals with that sin by wiping it away. But see, when we only emphasize God's holiness, it causes us to put sin on the table, it causes us to feel that guilt and shame, man, I've sinned against God, a holy God, but how do I deal with it? I guess I must figure out a way to prove myself religious enough, to be good, to outweigh all of that bad. And what's the consequences of that theology? You're left feeling ashamed and hated by a God who is so far away from but when we only emphasize the graciousness of God, it causes us to not see the need to put our sin on the table. Actually, I've heard people say that it's unhealthy to do things like acknowledge sin and seek repentance. And so what do we do? We're overemphasizing God's graciousness and so I don't feel motivated to actually put my sin on the table and acknowledge it. So what do I do? I just sweep that right under the rug. It doesn't get dealt with. Pretend that it didn't happen. Pretend that it's okay. Blame shift to other people, maybe. Stuff all that guilt and shame. Pretend everything is fine. Pretend that I'm somebody that I'm not. I'm a fake. 
inauthentic, religiously proud fake. And then we wonder why joy in Christ is so elusive. We wonder why these issues keep popping up. We wonder why we're embittered against God and against other people. There are consequences to our theology. God is holy and he is gracious. He calls us to put our sin on the table so he can deal with it. So we can root that stuff out of our lives so that his grace can come in and wash it away, making us completely new. God doesn't wanna sweep anything under the rug. He doesn't want you to pretend anymore. He doesn't want you to live a life of bitterness and shame. He doesn't want you to feel that guilt that's behind everything that you do now because everything you've done, you've just said, no, it's okay, God's got it. He does, but he's also called us to repent. And that's so good news to us because he's gracious and he'll deal with it. He wants you to take your sin seriously, confess it, and let his graciousness come in and deal with it. And so as we, as we close this morning, I just want all of us to ask the question, what are the consequences to my theology? Do I have a, a skewed view of God, maybe even slightly off? And how might that be impacting my life? Because there are real implications to theology. It's not a flippant matter. And Grace Hill, if, if I can be honest, I have heard, I've heard emphasis of God's holiness over graciousness here and emphasis over God's graciousness over holiness here. And just like Mary had to live in the tension of her son being both God and man, we need to live in the tension of having a God who's holy and calls us to repent and a God who is gracious and washes all of our sins away and makes us completely new, all by his grace. And if you're here and you're, you're not a follower of Jesus, or you're not sure what you believe yet when it comes to Jesus, you're a theologian, you have thoughts about God, we all have thoughts about God, and there are consequences to our theology. And I today, I, just, I want you to know that you can be made right with a holy and just God because he has drawn near to you through Jesus and has dealt with your sin. You just have to call upon him as your savior. And we here at Grace Hill, we just love to answer your questions and help you through a journey towards believing and trusting and having faith in Jesus. Repentance and faith, that is the Christian life. We have a God who is radically gracious. There's not a sin that he cannot deal with. There's not a stain that he cannot wash clean but he does call us to put it on the table, confess it, and seek to repent. And he comes in and deals with it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in a world where there is so many opinions, and in a world now where there's so many mediums to communicate those opinions, Lord, there, there's just so many opportunities now for our theology to get influenced. For the thing that influences our theology to influence us away from what your scriptures actually say.
And God, as we've seen today, we know that there are consequences when we begin to veer away from what your word says. When we begin to overemphasize certain aspects of who you are and your character. And God, the part of your character that we can have so much hope in this morning is the fact that you are good. That you don't meet the standard of good. You are the standard of good. And God, that in your holiness, in your graciousness, you are perfectly good. God, help us to acknowledge you for who you are, a holy God. You deserve all honor, glory, and praise. You deserve our worship. You deserve our submission. You deserve our obedience. You deserve us to take your word seriously. Help us to do that, God. And God, help us, Lord. See your graciousness that you have drawn near to us in Christ. You have made a way to wash all of our stains away, to make us completely brand new. And so God, as we seek to follow you, as we seek to trust in you, help us to trust in what your word says, that this Christian life is repentance and faith. We love you, God, and we praise you for coming and saving us in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.